Uh, our series is the, <clears throat> excuse me, the love of God and the law of fire, and we're looking at uh, the ten words, the ten commandments from Exodus twenty. As you're turning there, uh, you know, I, I have in mind this week this idea of the right tool for the right job, and I used to tell stories about other people, but I have a really good one about myself now. Uh, about using the right tool for the right job. Uh, apparently, that warning that they put on step ladders, you know, say like a six foot step ladder, and it says on the very top, you know what it says? Not a step. Don't step on that top step of the step ladder. Have you ever read that? Believe it. Believe it. It's true. So we had decided to put a, uh, a room, a little pirate's loft in our boys' room about 10 or so years ago. And uh, I cut a hole in the ceiling and was going up into the attic and needed to cut some other joists and things like that. So I was going to take my, ta- my uh, circular saw and, of course, to be safe, I, I put it in the case. And it's got a little clasp and everything is a big black case, you know. Uh, DeWalt or something, I can't remember what it is, but it's in the case, right? And so I put my step ladder up and I need to get up to the ceiling and it's about eight foot or so. And so I step up and I go up my, <clears throat> what size ladder? Six foot step ladder, which only counts that top step to be six feet. So it's kind of like false advertising if they don't let you use the top step. But anyway, so I carry this tool up and I'm using the ladder as a tool. And as I get to the top step, I'm not even thinking about it. I've climbed up and I try to go into the ceiling through this hole I have cut. And I stepped on that top step. And the ladder went that way. And I went that way. It was louder than that. And then there was screaming. And I think it was me. (laughs) I landed on the ladder on my thigh and praise the lord i i did not break anything except a bunch of capillaries or whatever they're called in my leg and i had the wickedest looking bruise and pain deep deep in my thigh for weeks and weeks and the greater 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 pain was to my pride oh everybody in the house came running And I learned a valuable lesson. You need to use tools the right way, the right job. And that's our message today, really, as we look at God's Word, as we look particularly here at the law of God, at the Ten Commandments or the Decalogue, it's a tool. And you need to use it. Don't leave it on the shelf, but you need to use it appropriately. And what does that mean? Well, let's dig in here to the Word of God The law of God. We're going to read Exodus chapter 20. We're going to look at through verse 21, uh, but I'm going to skip through and just abbreviate the Ten Commandments as we read them. So would you read with me Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 21 of God's holy word. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. Skip down to verse 7. 
You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. <clears throat> Excuse me. Verse 12, honor your father and your mother. Verse 13, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Verse 17, you shall not covet. Verse 18, all the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. And they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but let not God speak to us or we will die. And Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. For God has come in order to test you and in order that the fear of Him may remain with you so that you may not sin. So the people stood at a distance while Moses approached the thick cloud where God was. This is God's Word. Would you pray with me? Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You that You have given it to us. May it be more than pixels on a screen, uh, more than ink on paper, more than sound waves bouncing off our eardrums or even just penetrating our mind. But Lord, let it be your word transforming us from the inside out, making us to be more like Jesus, making us to understand how to use your word, particularly this gracious portion of your law. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I, I, you know, there's all kinds of stories about using tools uh, the, the wrong way, right? I, I'm sure in your house you have bent butter knives or, uh, you know, screwdrivers that have snapped because you were using them for something else. Or maybe you have the bruises to show for trying to use that top step on a stepladder. Whether they're physical Bruises or uh, pride, <laughs> emotional bruises. There, there is this need, this problem that we have of using things the wrong way or not using them at all. And here, as we look at the Ten Commandments, that, that's my, my main hope for you today is that you would walk away, and not just today, but as we, in the coming weeks, Lord willing, unpack each of these commandments, that you recognize that there is something really good here in God's law. There is something here in these Ten Commandments that is more than just something we could fight about whether it belongs in this place or that place. And there is something more here than a way for you to climb up to God, because that's not at all here. If you try to do that, you will fall to the ground spiritually more harmfully than any physical injury. So what is here, though? What, what is the point of this law and of these words? If you notice at the end of the passage that we read, Moses said kind of these contradictory words. Don't be afraid. God has shown up that you would fear. He's saying, look, don't be afraid of being destroyed right now. If you listen to God and if you obey what He says, it will go well with you. God has come that you would recognize that He ought to be feared. That you ought to listen to His words. That you may, it says, what? That He may remain with you. That fear may remain with you. And you may not sin. See, the point of the commandments here, the purpose of the Decalogue or the ten words, 
is to keep God's people safe from sin and near to God. So listen, you need to make sure you know, make sure you know which of the laws in God's Word are binding on you and how you can benefit from those laws. In other words, the law of God is a very good tool if you use it and use it appropriately. So let's, let's look at that. Let's drill down here and figure out which laws are binding and then how do you benefit. So first of all, which, which laws are, are, are binding? Well, there's three categories that most people would divide the laws in scriptures into. And there, there are more, and these are debated by some, but not others. But historically, these are the main categories of law when we look at the scriptures. They are judicial or civil, ceremonial, and moral. Judicial, ceremonial, and moral. And the Bible doesn't explicitly say anywhere in it. You know, it doesn't have like, you know, a, a tag, uh, some sort of categorization in it. This is some glowing light, right? Um, but these categories are really helpful as we look at the Scriptures, especially the Old Testament, to say, what's going on here? I don't understand. Does this apply today? Does this have anything to do with me? Why do we not do that? Why do we do this? Probably the reason is behind one of these categories of judicial, ceremonial, or moral, and how they work out as God works in history through time. And so, Let's look at those a little more closely. First, the judicial laws. These are the commands that established a particular practice or policy for Israel as a nation uh, brought together by God as a theocracy, that is God ruling over it, and then eventually a monarchy, a king over it. These are those laws, those judicial laws, sometimes called civil laws or even some people a I've heard call them criminal laws. They are things that are enforceable by a human court. They are the laws that are geared towards the citizens of a community as to how they can live together and get along and how they respond to wrongdoing or even defining what is wrong and what the punishments are. So in other words, judicial laws tell you not just that stealing is wrong, but here is how you respond when it happens. And if you look through the next couple of chapters of Exodus and in other places, it will tell you, oh, you need to restore what you stole and then make good another. What you wanted to deprive from somebody else, you will pay back as well from your own. So if you stole a lamb, you give back two lambs, the one you stole and another one, things like that. that those are the judicial laws. Not just that adultery is wrong, but here's how you handle it. Punish it and make restitution, all those kind of things. Now, if you think about that, those judicial laws were aimed at a particular people in a particular time and place, and they have now expired. They are no longer binding because that nation no longer exists. The, the nation of Israel today is not the biblical nation of Israel. And we can debate other issues about it, what it means, but they are not a theocracy. They do not have God's law here particularly geared for them. This is God 
at this time and place, saying this is how you apply the Ten Commandments. That's the judicial law. The next one is ceremonial law. This is what separated Israel, God's people, from the world, not just as a nation, a government, but as a worshiping people in a relationship with God who was present with a temple and with the ark and and with the priesthood and the sacrifices. All of those things are part of the ceremonial law, the ritual. Some people call it the, the cult in terms of the practices, not as in like a cult, but as in this are, these are the things you do to worship and serve. The main question the ceremonial laws are answering is, how do you live with God as your neighbor? Right? There's God dwelling among them in the tabernacle, in the tents, with the ark, through the wilderness, and then ultimately in the temple. And with the priesthood, and it's all about what? The sacrifices, the dietary laws, the feasts, the rituals, uh, the priesthood, circumcision, Passover, all those things, those ceremonial laws geared toward a community as worshipers of God, the living and true God. That's the ceremonial laws. They served another function, though. They were pointers to the way God would solve the problems that are involved with broken people living next door to a holy, righteous, true God. They pointed to, in other words, Jesus. The ceremonial laws point to His graces, actions, sufferings, and benefits. They were a shadow of the things to come, pointing to the need for God to come in the flesh. For Jesus to come and be the obedient servant and sacrifice because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That's Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4. Very strong words. It's impossible for the sacrifices that God commanded to take away sin. What? There has to be more, in other words, right? It was never the thought that, oh, always this animal in particular is going to provide for my sin and brokenness. It was always a pointer, a shadow of the way God would ultimately solve the problem in the coming of Jesus. As Hebrews 10 verse 1 says, the law is only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form. It can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have consciousness of sins. And he goes on to say that sacrifice and offering you've not desired, but a body you have prepared for me, that I might come to do your will. That always the ceremonial law was pointing forward to the way God would save and provide. Someone has said it's kind of like a, a flannel graph. You remember those pictures? Yeah, you put them up on a wall. It was a point or two. Like, they're not really Jesus, you know, and then the Bible story on a paper. Like that. The ceremonial laws are just that. They're pointing to the deeper 
reality. Preparing the way so that when John the Baptist would stand up and say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, everyone would go, wait a minute, what? And they would look at Jesus and they would begin to say, wait, how could He take away the sins of the world? As He lived among us perfectly, revealing that He is God Himself and man together without mixture, without confusion. And He would take our sin. He would be the perfect mediator between God and man. Not a bull or a goat or anything else, but God Himself united with humanity to take our place. Those are what the ceremonial laws always pointed forward to. And you see that in various ways as you roll through the Scriptures. You can see that was always the plan, always kind of played out. As the couple chapters here in Exodus, in chapter 24, Moses will speak of the blood of the covenant in chapter 24, verse 12. He says, oh wait, no, it's for, for that. Chapter 24, verse 8. Moses took the blood of the sacrifices that he had prepared. Moses took the blood, Exodus 24, 8, and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Here, here is the blood of an animal sacrifice put on the people and put on the law. And Jesus would eventually come. And what did He say at the Last Supper? In Matthew 26, He says, This is My blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of of sins that Jesus fully had in mind that he was fulfilling the law of God and the sacrifices of the ceremonial law. So these two, the judicial and the ceremonial, they were temporary for a certain time and place. They were temporary. Judicial for the nation as a government, the ceremonial for a community of worshipers of God. And then there is one remaining, and that one is eternal rooted in the character and purpose of humanity, of human beings, as image bearers of God. And that is the moral law. The moral law. Summarized here in the Decalogue, and unlike the first two categories, these moral laws are at work in every society. Have you ever wondered why? Everywhere, murder is wrong. Slight exceptions here and there. You know, there might be this tribe that is cannibalistic or something, and those are diminishing, I'm sure. But are they, they are exceptions. You go throughout the world, they, they, things like murder are just recognized as wrong. And we know from the Scriptures that that's because Romans 2, 14, 15 tells us the law of God is written on our hearts. As we talked about it last week a little bit, the fact that God would come down and reveal these ten words to his people after saving them is, a, is evidence of his love and grace. That he is clearly articulating his expectations and saying, this is right and wrong. Figure out how to put these to use in the world and it will go well with you. This is the way I design things. He's explicit. Whereas to other people, he has not come and revealed that so clearly as he did to his people as he rescued them. That is the moral Law. And in fact, those judicial laws about how to run the nation 
are God's particular application of the moral law to their situation. God spelling it out for them to help them. This is how I want you to relate to each other. Because you remember, as Jesus said, all the law and the prophets boils down to love God and love your neighbor. That fleshes out to what? The first four commandments, the second six. And that goes out to all of Scripture. That that is all working out how God would have us to live. It seems that if Adam and Eve had not taken of the fruit and eaten it and become fallen, sinful, broken people, we would not have need for the Ten Commandments to be articulated, to be spoken. God, Ecclesiastes 7.29 says, made men upright, but we have sought out many devices. That we need this external coming of the law because our hearts twist the truth. We suppress the truth that is within us. Okay, so we've got those three laws. Judicial, ceremonial, and moral. And that's why these are overviews, okay? We'll get into really applying these in the coming weeks, Lord willing. The thing to know, though, about all three of these is that they are not saving. Not one of them will save you. None of them make you right with God. None of them will do away with the wrongs that you've done. But that problem is not with the law. The problem is not that somehow the law has failed us. The problem is that we have failed with the law. That there is none righteous, no, not one. We've all gone astray. That, that we hear what is right and we don't do it. I told you before about that hotel, I think it was in Galveston, right, where they put up those signs that said no fishing from the hotel windows. And what happened? People were getting fishing poles. They didn't come for fishing, and they saw that sign. They said, I'm going to get a fishing pole. And they started fishing out the hotel windows. It was on a pier, and it went down into the, the, the gulf there. And so they would fish. How did they solve that problem? All these fishing lines, all the... They took down the signs. They took down the command. They removed it, right? So then people weren't provoked to sin anymore and disobey. That's just our hearts, right? You tell a kid, don't do that. What do they do? They want to do that. That's our hearts. That's the brokenness within us, right? So, so give up now thinking that you could find the law that you can just keep and make yourself right with God because one of the things the law is always going to do in a broken, sinful heart, which every one of us has, is provoke us to sin and rebellion. It's going to lead us astray, not because there is anything wrong with the law, but because our hearts are twisted and broken and we need something to happen at a deeper level. In other words, if you try to climb the law to get to God, you are going to crash. It's like that step ladder. It says on every step of it, this is not to save you. This is not what you need to trust in. This is not how you will find God every step of the way. It's interesting, Martin Luther one of his pilgrimages before he left what would we call now the Roman Catholic Church was watching people at the Santa Scalia in, near the Vatican there in, in Rome. And people would climb that 
stairs on their knees to get right with God because of their sins, kind of paying penance. And Luther just was struck. This, what, how is this going to make me right with God? My sin is so profound. None of it's going to make me right with God. So then what good is the law? If we have a judicial law and a ceremonial law that have expired, that have passed away, and the moral law, which is binding, but we, we can't keep it on our own, it, it just condemns us, what, what's the benefit? That's our, our second point here. So how do you benefit from the law? There's three things. We'll hit them briefly. The first thing you need to know is that actually you do benefit from the law because the law restrains evil in the world. It is a bridle, like a horse. You put it in their mouth, the bit and the bridle. It restrains, it pulls back. The, the existence of the law, the moral law especially of God, restrains sin. Whether someone confesses to believe what the Scriptures say or not, the reality is, and the reason there is not more murder and mayhem than there is, is that God has made us in His image. And that goodness by His grace is still in there. And whatever you see of someone who is outraged by one thing or another, who practices things that you find are contrary to Scriptures, guaranteed you will find in their life something else that they are adamant. This thing is the right way to do it. I, as an unbeliever, as a pagan, drunkard, foul-mouthed, had a Christian friend who would use the Lord's name in vain, as the world very often does. And it drove me bonkers. It just grated on me. And I really had no reason to want to protect the name of God. But there was just something about it that struck me. That's going to be in everyone because we are created in the image of God. You will find things that have a common ground for you to reach out to people and ask them that question. What makes that wrong? Uh, you think about someone who is adamant about evolution in terms of being like, there is no God. We evolved from primordial ooze and we started walking somehow because of time and time and more time. And then all of a sudden, you know, we sprouted legs. But even before that, there was nothing. And then all of a sudden, because of time, there was something. So you talk to someone who's an evolutionist. And they say it's all about survival of the fittest, right? So why can't you win the debate by pulling a gun and shooting them? You're fitter, you got a gun. Or just punch them. That's not right. Why is that not right? They don't really have an answer. You do. The reason it's not right is you were created in the image of God and you know deep down, you know deep down, you shall not kill. You know deep down that there is a God and though you suppress the truth, it, it leaks out. The moral law, the existence of it, written on our hearts, restrains sin. Romans 2, 14 and 15, bear that out. The second thing it does, the law of God, 
the benefit it is, is that it displays good from above. I kind of got into that with the point about evolution, right? The, the law displays good from above. It's a mirror. It is, uh, let me put it this way. Do you know teenagers, especially young women, are, uh, are harmed by Instagram? And, and Facebook, who owns Instagram, knows this. Just Google it later on today. Not right now. Google it later and read about it, that they know that, that Instagram and the constant scrolling is harmful to their young woman's mental health, and, and to young men too, but the, the studies have shown it, and Facebook is aware of this. Part of what's going on is, is, is the, the fake representation that's going on there, that it makes it look like everyone else has got it going on, and the airbrushing, and, and all of the packaging of our lives and everything else, right? That, that that's what's going on there. And so the young women look at that as a mirror. This is what I should be. This is who I should be. She can look like that. I could look like that. She does this. I can do that. And we're all guilty of that. We see things and we covet and we envy. Brothers and sisters, here's the thing. That's not all wrong. It's just you're looking in the wrong mirror. The mirror is the law of God. If you really want to feel bad, look at the law of God and say, wow, this is how short I've fallen. It's not just I don't have a thigh gap. It's that I have a moral gap. I am broken. Which brings to the second, I mean the third point, right? But before you get to the third point, which is that the word is a lamp. You have to recognize that the first two things there, these benefits, that it restrains sin like a bridle, and that it displays a good standard from above like a mirror, those two things are meant to bring you crashing to the ground. Those two realities are meant to expose what was exposed as I fell from my stepladder, which is pride. They're meant to bring us down because for us to even begin to think we can somehow climb up to God is to say we really don't understand Him. It's to say we really don't know what He wants. But if we look at His law, if we look at His Word, if we really engage it and see it and ourselves reflect it and we realize we don't love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We don't love our neighbor as ourselves, the most righteous among us, the most godly, the most compassionate person among us. We are tainted. And we fall short. The good news is the same word says what? That there is one who did come down. There is one that the ceremonial laws were always pointing to. There is one who has fulfilled the judicial laws, <laughs> who has broken no commandments and yet suffered the punishment. There is one who has come not just to live perfectly, who has not just known the law but kept it completely and who suffered in our place, and who poured out His blood, and gave His life, and He rose victoriously, because death could not hold Him down. Because God Himself came down to bear the weight of our brokenness, our guilt, our shame, our alienation, all of that, bore it down into the tomb, into the grave, into hell itself until the payment was satisfied. And he rose victorious and has sent his spirit 
into the hearts of his people, into the hearts of those who would say, I need this, I can't do it, I need help. And to say he has come down. You don't need the latter. You need the living God who has come down and he offers that to you by faith. And at that point, as you understand what he has done and the only way you can be made right with him, you can then use the law. Recognizing that it is covered in blood by the sacrifice of Jesus. You can use this law. Recognizing that you're dependent upon the Spirit, you can use this law in its benefit to you that it guides into a path of life like a lamp. That this word is a lamp. That can guide you. That it's good. That it speaks to our situation and to all situations through all time and will lead us in the right path. I, I remember in seminary, one of our assignments was uh, to read Scripture, obviously, right? But we were tasked with reading Psalm 119 in one sitting and just meditating on it. Psalm 119 is not only the longest psalm, it's the longest chapter in the whole Bible. It's long. Psalm 119 multiple couplets, one for each letter of the Hebrew alphabet, a poetry all about the law. And I started reading Psalm 119 as an assignment sitting there in the library in one of those little study carols, you know. And I'm reading it, and I'm reading it, and I'm reading it, and I'm like thinking, you know, I'm going to check this off. I got other things. I got another paper I need to write. I'm reading it, and I'm reading it, and I'm reading it. And something started to happen. Because the, it just extols the law of God with picture after picture, metaphor after metaphor, that it's sweet like honey, that it's light on a path, that it will keep a young man in his ways, all these things. And I began to think, this law thing is pretty good. I want me some of this law thing. And I kept reading and reading, and I'm just like, this is really good. Lord, this is good. I, 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 I like your law. And I began to just read it. Not because I'm anything special. Not because I decided. In fact, I wasn't deciding. I wasn't even really half paying attention. But I looked at the law and I read the law and God works. And sometimes all it requires is for you to just be there. And if you would even today say, you know what, I'm not just going to be there, Lord. I'm prepared. Lord, I want to use your law. I want to use it to make my marriage better. I want to use it to make my parenting better. I want to make it to use my worship better. I want to use it to make my generosity better. I want to use it to make my blessing of other people better. I want to use it to make life better. Brothers and sisters, that's what it's here for. If that's your orientation. If you recognize God has come to you and you are not deserving anything beyond punishment and hell and he has said, I'm going to work in you and I want you to have life 
And I want you to be free. And I want you to be a blessing. And I want your marriage to be better. I want your parenting to be better. I, I, I want your work to be better and appropriately balanced. I want your rest to be better and, and more fitting for a human being. I want your relationships all to be better. I want your worship to be better. I want your church to be better. I want everything about your life and community to be better. Would you come to me, he says, and trust that I have the right tool for the job. And as you come to me, will you recognize God saying to you that you're a part of that? Could you imagine if every one of us began to just get saturated in this law and in the coming weeks as we studied these Ten Commandments, we began to do things like put God really, really first in our lives. If we began to say, you know what, I have idols in my life, there are things I'm valuing more than God and I want to get rid of them. If, if we were to say, you know what, I will rest I will work hard and I will rest. I will set aside time to focus on God. Well, what would happen if we all said, you know what, I'm going to honor my parents no matter what age they are. Whether I'm a child that's still at home or I'm a grown adult and my parents are aging, what would imagine? What would happen if everyone else said, you know what, I'm going to honor my father and my mother more appropriately. And if we extended that as the scriptures do, to say I'm going to honor authority in my life, biblically and more appropriately, and what if we were to say, I'm not just going to not kill people, but I'm going to be more life-oriented. I'm going to see how I can make other people's lives more full and meaningful. I'm not only going to not commit adultery. I'm not only going to set aside all these bad habits and the lust of the flesh, but I'm going to invest in my marriage and find myself to be, again, a one-woman man or a one-man woman. Or I'm going to figure out how to live as a single person in a way that glorifies and honors God. I'm not only going to not steal, I'm going to be generous. Lord, use your law and your word to help me love others and be generous. I'm not only not going to spread falsehoods, Lord, I'm going to figure out how to use my tongue to be a blessing. That fresh water would flow from me. Could you imagine, what if we were all doing that? What if we all said, I'm not going to desire anything that anyone else has. I'm going to be content, Lord, with what you've given me. Whether it's my gifts, my circumstances, or anything else. What if we did all those things, brothers and sisters? Are you ready to do that in the next 10 weeks or so, Lord willing, as we unpack these commandments? I'm excited about it. Because it's kind of like reading Psalm 119. You show up and God shows up. And you get on your knees, you humble yourself, and stop believing you can climb that ladder. God's going to meet you at the bottom. Because that's the tool he's given you. And it starts with Jesus who has come down to the bottom. Not to leave you in misery, but to lift you up. To carry you himself. To help you along the way. Would you, would you believe that? And enter into the study. In the coming weeks, commit it to applying these laws that are good in the ways that God would have us to apply them. Which bring life. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, would you meet us in our weakness and brokenness as we enter into the study of your word, Lord? Having gotten behind us now some of the context and, and some of the, the intricacies, though not as deeply as we could, Lord, of things about categories of law and judicial, ceremonial and moral, of, of understanding the law and its uses of of being a, a bridal and restraining sin, of, 
Lord, being a mirror to reveal it and a lamp to our feet. Lord, would you help us, prepare us, work in our hearts and to begin memorizing these words. Lord, let them be more though than just these words. Let them unpack for us what it means to love you and to love our neighbor. Would you do that in the coming weeks? And would you start with us, O Lord, acknowledging that your law is good, that it is still binding, but you have loosed us to obey it. Would you, recognize, would you help us to recognize that it is beneficial to us, O Lord? We pray in your name, King Jesus. Amen.